where the Elbe veered up and debouched into the North Sea. The map, pulled from a pre-war German guidebook, failed to show that these conurbations were now a phantom city comprised only of ash and rubble. It's a bloody great palace by the river. Here. Wilkins's finger circled the crook at the end of the Elbchaussee, the road running parallel to the great river. I think it'll be to your taste, sir. The word belonged to another world, a world of surplus and civil comfort. In the last few months, Lewis's tastes had narrowed to a simple checklist of immediate and basic needs. Two and a half thousand calories a day, tobacco, warmth. A bloody great palace by the river suddenly seemed to him like the demand of a frivolous king. Sir? Lewis had gone off again off into that unruly parliament inside his head, a place where, more and more, he found himself in hot debate with colleagues. Isn't there someone living in it already? Wilkins wasn't sure how to respond. His CEO was a man of excellent repute with an impeccable war record, but he seemed to have these quirks, a way of seeing things differently. The young captain resorted to reciting what he had read in the manual, These people have little moral compass, sir. They are a danger to us and to themselves. They need to know who's in charge. They need leadership, a firm but fair hand. Lewis nodded and waved the captain on, saving his words. The cold and the calories had taught him to ration these. The house belongs to a family called Lubert. Lubert. Hard tea. The wife died in the bombings. Her family were bigwigs in the food trade, connections with Blom and Voss. They also owned a series of flour mills. Herr Lubert was an architect. He's not been cleared yet, but we think he's a probable white, or at worst, an acceptable shade of grey. No obvious direct Nazi connections. Bread. Sir? Lewis had not eaten all day and had taken the short leap from flour mill to bread without thinking. The bread he pictured in his head was suddenly more present, more real than the captain standing at the map on the other side of the desk. Go on, the family. Lewis made an effort to look as if he was listening, nodding, and setting his jaw at an inquisitive tilt. Wilkins continued. Lubert's wife died in forty-three in the firestorm. One child, a daughter, Frieda, fifteen years old. They have some staff, a maid, a cook, and a gardener. The gardener is a first-rate handyman, ex-Wehrmacht. The family have some relatives they can move in with. We can billet the staff, or you can take them on. They're clean enough. The process by which the soul sifters of the Control Commission's intelligence branch assessed cleanliness was the Fragebogen, or questionnaire. 133 questions to determine the degree of a German citizen's collaboration with the regime. From this, they were categorized into three color-coded groups, black, gray, and white, with intermediate shades for clarity, and dispatched accordingly. They're expecting the requisition. It's just a matter of you viewing the place, then turfing them out. I don't think you'll be disappointed, sir. You think they will be disappointed, Captain? They? The Luberts, when I turf them out. They're not allowed the luxury of disappointment, sir. They're Germans. Of course, how silly of me. Lewis left it there. Any more such questions, and this efficient young officer with his shiny Sam Brown and perfect putties would have him reported to psychiatric. He stepped from the overheated British military detachment headquarters 
into the premature cold of a late September day. He blew vapour and pulled on the kid gloves that Captain McLeod, the American cavalry officer, had given him in the town hall at Bremen the day the Allies had announced the division lines of the new Germany. Looks like you get the bum deal, he had said, reading the directive. The French get the wine, we get the view, and you guys get the ruins. Lewis had lived among the ruins for so long now, he had stopped noticing them. His uniform was fitting garb for a governor in this new quadripartite Germany, a kind of internationalised mufti which in the midst of post-war disorientation and re-regulation passed without comment. The American gloves were prized, but it was his Russian front sheepskin coat that gave him the most pleasure, its provenance traceable back via the American to a Luftwaffe lieutenant who had, in turn, taken it from a captured Red Army colonel. He'd be wearing it soon enough if this weather kept up. It was a relief to get away from Wilkins.